welcome to the Keen on Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Keenan Yoga podcast is Eddie Stern. Eddie. Today's guest on the Keenan Yoga podcast is Rupert Spira. Another one of our segues outside Ashtanga Yoga in its literal sense. As far as I know, he's never taught or practiced yoga. He worked as a potter for over 40 years whilst pursuing his love of Advaita Vedanta. Now, Advaita means non-dual, and these teachings generally take place in conversational form regarding the ultimate nature of our consciousness as one, in a basic sense. So it's, this, it's from this position that Rupa has lived for many years, and having gradually arrived there through the practice and help of his primary teacher, Francis Lucille. For the last 12 years, Rupert, born and bred in the United Kingdom, has taught internationally and to great acclaim, because he breaks these rather conceptual sometimes teachings to, down into a more practical sense. He starts from the premise, as you'll hear on this podcast, of everyone wants happiness. And he generally in- illustrates from there that we limit ourselves unhappily through believing our experience to be out there in the world, as opposed to already possessed in us. So to put it most simply, Rupert teaches that happiness is our central nature. And yet this is no new age talk. His success as a teacher in my eyes, and I consider him a teacher of mine, comes through his propensity to deliver incredibly clear and concise instruction. So although I challenged Rupert in the conversation, it was for the purpose of explaining and him further clarifying his teachings. And I hope you're able to catch and enjoy the deep resonance of his words, and indeed the energy in this highly unique unique talk of ours. So today's guest is Rupert Spira. Welcome, Rupert, to the Keenan Yoga podcast. Thank you, Adam. Nice That's, to be with you. Yeah, it's really, I'm so honoured and flattered to have really someone who I've, I've looked to for many years. Um, so today, bear with us. It's not about Ashtanga Yoga audience. This is about Advaita Vedanta. And um, to that end, um, I wonder if, Rupert, you could give a little bit of your backstory of, as in how you arrived at what you have today. When I was in my mid-teens, I became very interested in uh, spiritual matters. And in fact, the very, I think the very first book I ever read was a book of uh, poems by Rumi, who many of you will have heard of in those days, um, the translations that we're now familiar with by Coleman Barks and others were not available. I, I only had the, the rather dry academic uh, translations, but they were very beautiful. And they uh, touched me very much. So, so th- th- this kind of awakened my interest. Well, th- 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 let me go back even further. Let me, let, me, let me go right back to the beginning. When I was uh, seven years old, apparently I said to my mother, I feel that everything is God's dream. 
and that our job is to make the dream as pleasant a dream as possible. It was one of those naive, innocent, unsolicited comments that (laughs) very young child. Nevertheless, she she must have been surprised, nevertheless. (laughs) She she was surprised and uh, remembered it and has reminded me of it on several occasions. So now fast forward um, 10 or so years, I came in contact with uh, Rumi's poetry, which resonated very deeply with me, that that this original sentiment that that, that I felt that everything is God's dream, everything is an expression of God's being, was still present in me. It had been present uh, um, all through my childhood and early teenage years. So reading Rumi kind of reawakened that feeling and that interest. I then uh, um, learned to meditate. I joined a started going to a a society in London called the Study Society, which was um, a society which was devoted to studying the classical Advaita teaching, the non-dual teaching as expressed in India. So I learned to meditate in this this school and spent 20 years there um, studying the non-dual teaching. Uh, So now um, this takes you to about my mid Mid thirties, I felt that I had. The, 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 sorry, did you want to? No, I was just going to qualify where that what, where that school was and what it what it was called again. It, it was called Solid House. It was called the the, the, the place is called the Study Society. Right. I think it's soon to be changed its name. The, the Study Society. It's it, it called it House in in West London. I think they now call themselves the Centre for Non-Duality. So I spent, I really grew up in, in right. this. Okay, in so this. you've been doing this all your life. So since my, all my adult life, I've mm. been meditating, going to, uh, studying the classical Advaita or non-dual teaching. Um, I did this for for 20 years. And at some stage, I felt that I had I'd come to the end of of that. Uh, I'd reached a limit, not really because of the teaching itself, but because of my own understanding, but possibly because the teaching was came from an Indian tradition. I felt that I was not able to really make the understanding my own. So mm. I, I moved away from that school. I later met the man who became my teacher, Francis Lucille, and spent the next 13 years with him. Again, um, studying and practicing, attending many retreats, asking numerous questions, having many conversations. <laughs> Again, in London, doing yoga. No, no, this was now. He lived in California, so I and, and I used to attend his retreats in in uh, all over Europe and California. And it was really during this period that all the uh, teaching that I had uh, learnt about during the, those first twenty years really became my own lived and right. felt experience. And that it was towards the end of that time that I wrote a book and began to uh, speak about these matters myself. So that that's a very condensed, <laughs> I'm uh, sure, um, yeah, <laughs> history. There's a nice synopsis. I mean, uh, <laughs> 45 years it flashed by in an instant. Uh, <laughs> it, it it has indeed. Yeah, I know. I know the feeling. I'm not even as old as you yet. Um, what work were you doing at this time? Were you working? I mean, what? So, yes, I was uh, working as a potter. That's what I it was, had yes, been yeah. um, all through my school years and early teenage years. I was interested in science, destined to. I was fascinated by uh, bi- biology, biochemistry. I was intending to go into a, a career in medicine or biochemistry, but then in my mid-teens, uh, um, 
I saw an exhibition of the work of a man called Michael Cardew, who was one of the founding fathers of the British studio pottery movement. Anyway, my my um, my, my kind of fledgling career took a, 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 a an abrupt. Um, <laughs> 90 degree turn or 180 degree turn, I should say, at that stage. And um, I went to art school. I did an apprenticeship later with Michael Cardew for the last couple of years of his life. And I worked as a potter for 30 years and uh, um, had a studio, first of all, in Hampshire, where I lived, and then in Shropshire and exhibited um, all over the world. Yeah, it sounds like And that. so in my um, mid, in, in my late uh, 30s, 40s, uh, um, really for 30 years from really up until about the age of 50 when as I said I wrote this book I started to receive invitations to uh, speak about uh, non-duality so I began to travel um, holding retreats and at some stage the, 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 the speaking and writing about non-duality really took off and <laughs> came at time when I just, I just couldn't do both. So, so one career mm. sort of came right. quietly to an end while the other uh, um, began to take off. So for the last 12 or so years, I've been writing and speaking about these matters. Don't make any, any pottery anymore, just for yourself. I don't even have a studio anymore. Oh, no, wow. no, no. Well, you have to now slightly qualify or at least give, give the audience some idea of what, what, you're, what you're meaning when you say non-duality or advaita? Okay. Non-duality is simply the understanding that uh, reality consists of a single, um, unlimited and indivisible whole whose nature is consciousness or awareness or in traditional religious language spirit, or we could even say love. But normally, we would say that non-duality is the, the understanding that reality is essentially consciousness, that, that consciousness is the ultimate reality of everything, both of ourself and of the universe that we perceive. So the, the uh, most of us, just to put this in the in, in context, most of us, most of our experience is um, not only conceived but felt to take place in subject-object relationship. Yes. Self right. and other, mind and matter, subject and object. So this, uh, the non-dual traditions would suggest is an illusion. The, the division of experience into a subject and an object, mind and matter, is, is an appearance. That's how it appears things are. But in reality, underneath this appearance of subject, object, me and you, this and that, there is a, a single, infinite and indivisible whole whose nature is consciousness. It sounds a stupid question, but what attracts you to get into that in the first place? I mean, for, for a lay person thinking, okay, fair enough, right? I'm just kind of envisaging a certain person in the audience thinking, well, okay, that sounds fair enough. Yeah, everything's one in the end, but uh, I'll just carry on, you know, living my own own selfish life and my own selfish desires. And, you know, like what's what's the benefit of, yeah. of pursuing this well, path? I, I've given you a rather philosophical um, definition of the 
term advaita or non-duality. Um, let me try and let me try and uh, uh, well, I asked for it, it to be fair or describe it. Yes, well, it, it, in so that that's why I that's why I defined it in those terms. It, it, let me let me try to speak about it in a different way, which will perhaps mm -hmm. relate sure. to 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 our everyday experience rather mm -hmm. than a, a, a philosophical idea. It, I, I would suggest that non-duality is the is the the non-dual understanding is the understanding that underlies all the great religious and spiritual traditions. And if uh, this understanding were to be summarized, it could be summarized in two statements. I've given you the second statement, namely that reality is a single, infinite and indivisible whole. In other words, that that we are one. But the first statement the first way of uh, the first way we could distill the essence of a non-dual understanding would be to suggest that peace and happiness are our very nature right now that sounds more attractive that sounds a bit more attractive <laughs> that, that that you know not not many people are like yeah. you know, if you Oh, oneness. I'll take. I'll, I'll take oneness. But yeah, spiritual. You know, like peace and um. Yeah, that that's that sounds more like it. Yeah. We were to do a survey on the streets. How many people, people want oneness? In, in, <laughs> are interested in in um the the, the ultimate nature of truth, reality. It's not truth. the kind of not many or or, or truth. It, 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 this doesn't occupy many people. However, if we were to ask how many people are interested in happiness, all <laughs> seven point eight. <laughs> at least a large percentage of people hopefully <laughs> well i think we can be sure that more than just a large percentage i think we can be, i could think we can say for certainty that everybody without exception loves happiness feel, above all yeah. else hmm. okay so let's carry on with this this uh this discussion so, so now to answer your question um what got me into this what what um i'll relate an experience that happened to me i i this was in my early 20s now. So I'd been interested in these matters for, for, for some time. I was already uh, practicing, meditating, studying. But a, a, an experience that most people will be able to relate to occurred to me in my early 20s. Well, not, not an extraordinary experience at all, a familiar experience. Um, in, in brief, uh, um, my, my girlfriend, who, who we'd been together for three or so years, I, I was expecting us to... Um, Get married and live happily ever after. In a in a phone call lasting for a couple of minutes, um, just terminated our relationship. And that was a that that really my it, the kind of bottom fell out of my world. Then I realised that I had invested my happiness in something so fragile, so so fleeting, so insecure. And this precipitated. This really, uh, it 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 it, um, it was like a catalyst in my uh, spiritual search at this time. As I said, I had been interested in these matters, but now this 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 gripped me with a passion, and, and I had this single question: What is a reliable source of happiness? Hmm. What in what can I? I I'm going to spend my life seeking happiness. I love happiness above everything else. If I was given one wish, 
somebody said, what do you want? I'd ask for happiness. Why would you ask for anything else? In fact, if you did ask for anything else, it would only be because you thought that you would get happiness from it. For, let's say you asked for a million dollars. Why do you want a million dollars? If somebody said to you, okay, I'll give you a million dollars, but you, I guarantee you'll be miserable, would you take it? Of course not. Well, doesn't this relate to the qualification of happiness? What is it, what is it that we mean when we say happiness? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm presuming that everybody knows what is meant by the experience of happiness. Well, I, no, I mean, not to play devil's advocate, but a lot of people presume actually it's excitement. Not, you know, not the kind of stillness and peace that is prescribed within the more spiritual. You know, I mean, the materialism, materialist happiness would be excitement, you know, stimulation, right? They're not advocating peace out there. When, we, when we're excited, we are in an, a state of expectation. We're expecting something to happen which we hope will be something that we enjoy. It's not a state of happiness, it's a state of expectation. In the experience of happiness, expectation has come to an end. Let, let, let's, say you, let's say you seek, um, let's say you, you're looking forward to your summer holiday uh, and, and you're in a state of excitement. You're in a state of expectation. You're, you're looking forward to arriving on the Caribbean beach. Now, when you arrive on the Caribbean beach, you are no longer in a state of expectation. What you were expecting has already come about. You're happy because you've, you've got what you want. In other words, happiness and, expect, and, and excitement or expectation are mutually exclusive. If you're expecting something to make you happy, you are not yet happy. So in the experience of happiness, seeking, desire, expectation, excitement come to an end. You, 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 what you've got is what you want. What is that? In other words, there is no, it's the, we, we could define happiness in the, in, in the negative. As I suppose I'm using excitement towards desire. Like when I say excitement, I don't actually mean anticipatory excitement. I mean a sense of desiring something as in sensory stimulation. You're, you know, in, like you're on the Caribbean beach and you're desiring again. You're not there. You're not really happy. You thought you would be. You got your cocktail. You got your phone or whatever's on the phone, you know, like and you're still in this state of sim stimulation, assuming that's happiness, but still something's missing. Yeah, if something's missing emotionally, not physically, but if something is missing emotionally, then you're not happy. You're still expecting something to happen or, or, or to, to acquire or achieve something in order to be happy. So uh, happiness is the... We experience happiness when a desire is fulfilled. In other words, when desire comes to an end, we experience happiness. That's what happiness is, the end of desire, the end of seeking, the end of resisting. That's a pretty radical proposition for some, some people to kind of accept that, that actually it would be the end of desire. Well, when you seek something, 
do you not seek it in, in order to bring the seeking to an end? Of course. Yes, it's not a radical proposition at all. It is just a statement of fact. So let me ask you a question, Adam. Is there anything yeah. you want in life more than happiness? Um, yeah, probably truth. If you knew that truth would make you miserable, would you still desire it? I don't know. I mean, it sounds perverse. It sounds perverse, Rupert, but maybe I would. If you say, I don't know, if you say, I don't know to that question, it implies that you're not sure that you want truth above all else. So now go back and, and consider my original question. What is it that you want for certain above all else? Because you're not sure that it's truth. You want truth on your conditions. As long as truth comes with happiness, you want it. But there's no guarantee that truth will come with happiness. So now go back and ask. You're, you're, you're offered two things. Truth or happiness? Which would you prefer? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, well, I can't say both. Can't no. be truthfully, can't be truthfully happy. Um, I think to be, uh, uh, to be, to be fair, we're playing a kind of game here. But to be fair, I think that, that happiness and truth are, you know, are probably, um, you know, kind of they, they, you can't find one I, without I, the other. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Of course, of, of course, I, I agree with you. And, Muck and, it around and, here. And, and, and my, my my statement at the beginning that the first definition of non-dual understanding is is that happiness is the very nature of our being. being no, all yeah. I was trying to indicate was that um, was that we desire happiness above all else. But actually, the, the experience of happiness is the cessation of desire rather than the in, kind of going into the desires is still i mean i'm not saying you're speaking in a radical yeah. terms to me this makes sense but i mean i think to to many people this is this is it's quite a profound statement well the, 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 yes that that may be so ha, uh, seeking is a state of it's a state of becoming when we seek something we don't want what we have now we want something that is not non-existent. We want something that we project into the future. In other words, we are not at peace and fulfilled now. We, we desire an object, a substance, a person, an activity in the future because we think that that person or object will bring our state of dissatisfaction to an end. So what, to go back to the non-dual understanding, the, the, the non-dual understanding suggests that the happiness for which I would suggest everybody seeks above all else cannot be found in objective experience. It is the very nature of our own being. And therefore, the, the, the direct path to happiness is this exploration of the nature of one's own being. This is why almost all the great religious and spiritual traditions encourage us to go inwards, not, not inwards into the, into the body, but in, inwards into the depths of the 
of our own being or into the depths of our own mind. The, the, all the great traditions tell us this is where the happiness for which we long resides. I think, I mean, and again, I'm, you know, just kind of imagining. And uh, yeah, well, to a degree, I think I, it was my thinking when I first encountered this message. It's like, well, that just seems rather stark and kind of bland. Like, okay, I'm left without desire. Uh, what do I do now? Like, okay, theoretically, I'm going to be happy. But, you know, to the onlooker who's used to desire, it seems like a rather colourless life. I mean, I, I'm sure a question you've been asked a hundred times is, well, can you still enjoy stuff? Like, do you, you know, as, as someone who has, I assume, reached oh, this state of desirelessness, of can you still, do you still enjoy pleasure? Right. So, you know, you don't desire of pleasure, course. but you can enjoy it. Yes, your, your happiness is no longer dependent on pleasure. It doesn't mean to say that you don't enjoy it, but you don't need a pleasant experience in order to make you happy. Your happy is prior to what is or is not taking place in your experience. You say, this is rather a bland life. Can you enjoy a life like this? On the contrary, I would say it was the only way to enjoy a life. Can you truly enjoy a life in a constant state of seeking and resistance? Is that an enjoyable life? No, of course not. The, what, what we call the ego or the separate self lives in a constant state of dissatisfaction. That is seeking and resistance. That is not enjoyable. The one thing the ego or the apparently separate self seeks is to bring that state of dissatisfaction to an end. Well, the end of dissatisfaction is what is commonly referred to as happiness. On the contrary, you say, is it possible to enjoy such a life? It, it's the only way to enjoy life. How can one enjoy life if one lives in a, in a constant state of dissatisfaction? That's not enjoyment. That's suffering. Can you pragmatically say how it's different then that you, in, the, in your approach to leading daily action, from this perspective, rather than say, I mean, how would you define the, the, the regular perspective out there? Materialism, or I don't know how you'd like to qualify it, but you know, the, the regular person who's pursuing desire. The, the, the regular, most people's, most people's feel that, that they are a, a separate self or ego. This, this is most people's understanding and felt experience of themselves. I am a temporary, finite, separate self, living, living in the body, limited to the body, destined to share, to, 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 to age and become sick and to die with the body. This is a, the common view of ourself as, as temporary, finite, separate selves. The, the inevitable consequence of this belief of separation is suffering on the inside and conflict on the outside. Yeah. It is in response to the experience of suffering or suffering on the inside and conflict on the outside that the non-dual traditions, the non-dual understanding in whatever tradition it is expressed says if you want relief from suffering, you have to recognize the nature of yourself. 
Happiness cannot be found through objective experience. In your living experience, I mean, do you step outside in the morning? I mean, I don't suppose we have probably no one gets milk delivered to their house anymore, right? <laughs> or probably doesn't drink it, but, you know, pick up the milk bo bottles and kind of fill one with everything, right? You know, you know is it a consistent experience or, you know, was there a moment when, when it changed for you psychologically, uh, experientially? So, as I said, from a very early age, the age of seven was the first time I ever formulated it. I had this, I had this intuition that, that everything, that reality was, was God's dream. Uh, and in just the same way that when we have a dream at night, the entire contents of the dream is the activity of our own mind. This intuition, now 50 odd years later, I formulated differently. I suggest that the entire universe is, is not God's dream, although I might say that in a religious context, but is the dream of the activity of infinite consciousness. And I am just one segment of, I as an individual, I'm just one segment of that infinite consciousness, which is, so to speak, interacting with itself. So, um, so that was my very first intuition of it. Then I, I forgot that intuition. I fell into separation as we all do. I then had to study and practice for many, many years uh, uh, to recognize uh, not only the nature of myself, but, but to recognize that the, the relationship between myself and the universe. And at some point it became clear to me that what I essentially am and what the universe essentially is, is the same. Now, it doesn't mean when I go outside and <laughs> pick up the, the milk bottle, I, I feel one with the milk bottle. No, it's just a, a, a general feeling that um, that I share my being with everyone and everything. In other words, the appearance of multiplicity and diversity has lost its veiling power. It, it, it's, I'm not suggesting that, that the appearance of multiplicity and diversity do doesn't from time to time come back and veil its reality, but, but it increasingly rarely, fewer and fewer experiences have the capacity to persuade me that life really consists of separate, independent, discrete people mm, and right. objects. At, at, at a, I'm describing it in philosophical. Yeah, I was going to say, can you, can you explain that experience in in a kind of? It's more. It's more visceral in a visceral way, right? So you feel it. This is a sense of a felt experience in the very body. In, you feel that in a, the body. A felt experience that that whatever I experience out there in the universe is of the very same nature as myself. It's, it's a very common experience. It's called love or beauty. We all, when, that's what the experience of love is. When we feel, when we love someone, we basically feel that we are one with that person. That's what the experience of love is, the feeling that we share our being. We may have different ideas, and, but love is the feeling that at the deepest level, we are one. 
And beauty is exactly the same experience, but in relation to an object yeah. rather than a person. Yeah. I'm not describing some... It's, not, it's nothing far out. What, what's far out is you're, yeah. you're suggesting you feel that all the time. I mean, that's this is quite yeah. an incredible claim, if it's to be believed. You, you're saying you're, you're feeling in love, like that state of feeling all the time. Uh, yeah, it, it's not a heightened sense of being in love, it, 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 but it's a feeling that, that whatever I encounter, that, that its essential nature or being is what I am. Yes. Was there a moment when that, that was it a, a quick click when, when you changed that state? No, or slow, no it, okay. it wasn't. There were, there were insights sort of incremental insights along the way where this conviction got stronger and deeper. And the stronger, the more it, it, it the, the more I felt it, the more I lived in a way that was consistent with this understanding, it, 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 it confirmed again and again this possibility. It just became over a period of time and it continues to deepen. It just became my lived and felt experience, but there were no, there was no, as I say, there were there were there were glimpses, but there was no mm. decisive moment where it changed from black to white. Right. It was more that that, as I said, the, the appearance of multiplicity and diversity, the appearance of ten thousand things, gradually lost its capacity to veil. The, the, the oneness that lies underneath it. it. It's like when you watch a movie. And you're, you're, when we watch a movie, we, we're, we're watching a, a football game. We see 50,000 people in, in the stand. We don't ever think I'm seeing 50,000 things. We always retain, even if we don't formulate it to ourselves, we always retain the knowledge that we're looking at one screen. In other words, the football match or, or, or the, 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 mm. the movie is transparent. The image uh, in the movie or the match is transparent to its reality, namely the screen. Well, it's the same thing. Looking out uh, at, at the world, the appearance of 10,000 things becomes increasingly transparent to its reality, namely infinite consciousness, or in religious language, God's infinite being. doesn't mean to say that we cease, or, or it doesn't mean to suggest that, we're, that I'm looking at an extraordinary world that, 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 that you are not seeing. No, I, I see exactly the same world as you see. If the Buddha were here sitting next to us, he would be looking at exactly the same world Mm. That, that, that we are looking at. He'd be seeing the same world, but it would have lost its capacity to persuade him that reality consists of a multiplicity and diversity of discrete, independently existing objects and subjects. But underlying this, this appearance, there is a single, infinite, indivisible whole, and that is what we essentially are. How do you do this if you're not a teacher like yourself? I mean, for most people pursuing a career in the world, pursuing a life in the world, it seems hard to operate in this state whilst trying to gain a foothold in material reality, let's say. I mean, is it is it kind of completely antithetical to materialism? 
I, I would say it was hard to, to, to live in any other way. It's hard to live from the egoic point of view, the, the, the ego or the separate self that most people um, believe and feel themselves to be is in a constant state of conflict and tension, both within themselves and with everyone un and with everyone else. That's hard. What I'm speaking of is not. Yeah, I suppose I'm just thinking of the regular person who kind of thinks, well, okay, if I don't push my agenda on the world, if I don't assert my being and, you know, what I want and, you know, to try and achieve financial security in my home and my food, which are big things, right? Like I'll just, I'll starve in this state of wellness. Yeah, no, no, I'm not suggesting for a minute that, that any of those goals, financial security, um, a, a nice home to live in, f food, health. I'm not suggesting right. for a minute that none of these things are, are, are um, valuable or desirable. Of, of course they are. I'm suggesting that if we invest our desire for happiness in the objective content of our experience, in other words, if we expect a person to make us happy or a house to make us happy or a job to make us happy or a holiday or anything or anyone to make us happy, we are destined for disappointment. So rather than spending one's life seeking happiness where it does not live, I'm simply suggesting that one should seek happiness where it truly resides, namely in one's own being. And this is not incompatible with leading a, a, a earning a decent living, bringing up your family, educating well, if your everyone's kids. One, if everyone's one, then why would you take money off someone else? They're, they're you. Why would you? How could you ever do business? Because um, you you may um, you you may have recognised your true nature of peace and happiness. You may feel yourself one with everyone and everything, and yet at the same time you may have a child who is sick and you need to go to the pharmacy to, to buy some medicine. Your, your, your pipes may burst. You need to call a plumber to fix your pipes. You, you may need a shelf in your kitchen. You call a carpenter to build a kitchen shed or to build a kitchen shelf. All these things. You, you, you may need to, to drive to go to work. You need to buy a car. You need some money to buy your car, so you need to go, etc. There's nothing incompatible with uh, earning a living, paying other people to do things that you are not able to do with money that you have earned by doing things that perhaps they are not able to do. There's nothing incompatible with that. There's nothing incompatible about that, about what I'm saying, with... Um, getting an education, training, developing skills, finding a job, earning a living. And you could still kind of, I would still say, assert you, a, a sense of individuality whilst also in the yes, same... Of course. At the same time, believing one's, yeah. one's non-dual, it seems a bit confusing. Absolutely. One, one's individuality flourishes on account of this understanding. The individuality is um, crippled. One's true individuality is crippled by the ego or sense of separation. Once 
our, our individuality, once our character is liberated from the sense of separation, we don't just become a bland wolfland. No, our, our individual, our, our character is liberated from the tyranny of the ego, and our character actually becomes. It may become more colourful as a result. In another person, it may become quieter and more retiring. It, it, it can vary, but one's individuality doesn't go. It is enhanced, but one's individuality is then used instead of being used in the service of the ego with its train of suffering and conflict. The ego, it, the, the individuality, is used in the service of truth and love and beauty. And you, as an individual, you, you express those qualities in the world. You don't just sit at home meditating all day long. You may go out and travel around the world, but, but you're not doing so to fill up this void inside yourself, that, that, that this insatiable void that needs more and more and more to make itself happy. And even then, it's never really happy. It still needs more and more. No, you feel basically at peace in yourself, but you still may go out into the world. But why to, would you? To, to why would you? You just sit at home staring at the, the clock. Is that what you do when you're happy? When you're happy, is that what you do when you, when you're, when you feel love or <laughs> happiness or peace? You just sit at home staring at the clock? No, <laughs> you don't. Of course you don't. You, 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 there's this, you, you, you go out, you, you express it, you share it, you celebrate it. So when, when you have this understanding, whether it's nice. whether you formulate it intellectually in these terms, or whether it's just something mm. more at the felt level, there is in almost everybody, perhaps not everybody, that you know, the, 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 the traditions uh, describe people who have lived in, in uh, as hermits in caves. But in almost everybody, there is this irrepressible impulse to share this understanding. And by this understanding, I don't mean this intellectual understanding. I mean to share happiness, mm. peace, love, beauty. So you, you, you don't sit around at home staring at the clock. That's what depressed people do. That's what people who are, who are, uh, um, whose lives are dominated by the ego. Uh, depression is an extreme version of that. Right. The people who, who have um, recognized or are in the process of recognizing this understanding in themselves, in other words, as the sense of separation becomes more and more transparent in them, their innate peace and joy and love begin to emerge from the depths of their being. And these people tend to go out into the world and share it and communicate it in one way or another. They bring this love and understanding to humanity. And their character is now used in the service of this love and understanding. Such people are often tremendously energetic, powerful people. Not always. They could also be very quiet and retiring and never and, and just live a quiet life at home. That, that's also possible. In other words, this understanding can inform a wide variety of different characters. Some may become more extrovert as a result of this understanding. Some may become more reclusive and retiring yes, as yes. a result of this understanding. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting there is one way yeah. uh, um, to express this understanding. There are innumerable ways. In fact, the ego is the great leveler in life. The ego makes us conform and, and become uh, um, but surely, to narrow are you not, 
are, are you not still living through the ego? Perhaps you could say you're not the no, ego, not but isn't it still? No, no. The ego is the belief. No, the ego is the belief in separation. But if my, you didn't have mind, an ego, you, you, how would you feed yourself? How would you take care of your basic needs if you didn't still believe you had a separate self? I'd, I'd go to the fridge. I'd open the fridge. <laughs> uh-huh. I'd, I'd take yeah, out yeah. my my uh, my. But it's my, not. My, it's, my so it's, <laughs> So it's still a condition, is a condition reaction or you misunderstanding. There's a misunderstanding okay. here, Adam. That the ego equals the mind and the body. This is and therefore without an ego, how can you possibly function? No, this is a misunderstanding. The ego, the mind and the body are not by themselves the ego. The ego is a belief and a feeling that what I essentially am is limited to the mind and the body. It is a belief in separation. Now, the ego, the, the mind and the body can function under the belief in separation. Exactly the same mind and body can function divested of the belief in separation. In fact, the mind and the body function much better when they are not dominated by the belief in separation. So it is not this understanding that somehow makes us dysfunctional. It is the ego which makes us dysfunctional mentally, emotionally, and physically in extreme cases. This understanding liberates us from that dysfunction. And the mind and, and our mind and our body then remain, is then available to be used in the service of love and understanding, whereas previously it was used in the service of the neuroses and the anxiety and the fear and the dysfunction of the ego. So in... in how, how would you... I, I liked that. I liked that. I thought, I'd, I mean, I'm not very good at the pause. I'm just learning how to pause. And I'm very much like your pauses. <laughs> I was just pausing with you. I mean, I enjoy them now. I'm trying to enjoy them. It's not my temperament. Um, so, I mean, how, I mean, how would you teach that? Like, I mean, I suppose, I mean, the, I know, I have to say, I, I know a little bit of Advaita um, style of teaching, and it generally is a, a, a discourse, right? A, a question or a lecture answers. Adam, I teach it. The way I'm I, by doing what I'm doing now, yes, which is basically I come to this conversation, uh, and I I have no idea what we're going to talk about. I'm open to whatever you have to say. You ask me a question, and I respond. That's it. That that's what I do. That's not an easy teaching role to inhabit. Well, maybe it is for you now, but you know, well, it, it is easy. It, it's very easy because it uh, because it just requires being open and listening and responding sincerely from one's own experience. Do you ever get angry at the questions? Like, do people ever wind you up? No. I suppose one one thing that I was thinking, like in I talking to you, yeah, it, it, I got angry. Hmm. If people asking questions made me angry or wound me up, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm doing what I'm doing because I enjoy it. I love people's questions. I feel their sincerity. 
So somebody asked me recently, don't you get bored of hearing the same questions over and over again? I've probably, I don't know how many thousands of questions I've heard. I've never heard the same question once because every question comes with the sincerity and interest and love of the person who asks it. And, and I, I feel it as such. I feel it. It's like the first question I've ever been asked. Right. Mm. And so I, 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 res, I, I feel enthusiastic about it. Um, no, it doesn't irritate me at all. I suppose there's, there's many kind of qualifications of one simple question, like how can I be happy and how can I get out of this sense of separation, I suppose. There's a qualifier of that. Um, in many, in, said in many different ways, perhaps. Okay, so now, so now you ask, uh, um, how can I get out of this sense of separation? Let's take the. You ask two questions, then. Let's take the last one. How can I get out of this sense of separation? This sense that I am separate, and and I would suggest the answer is you have to begin to explore yourself. Well, that's nebulous. Okay. How do I do that? Okay, the next question: How, how do I do that? Well. <laughs> Would you agree that you have always you always feel that you are yourself? Or, for instance, let's just take today. You you feel I've been myself. I've been Adam all day today. Oh, I'm prepped for this one. I've heard you do this one before. Um, <laughs> um, I think there's been many different shades of of Adam today. No, I, I didn't ask you. Okay, that's perfect. You said many different shades of Adam, but it's always the mm -hmm. same Adam, albeit different shades. So let's not talk about the different shades. Let's talk about the Adam who runs, who is the consistent element throughout all these shades. Yeah, you said there, there have been different shades of Adam all day. So, so you, you agree that Adam has persisted all day? In a figure of speech. No, no not a figure of speech, your actual experience. You, you, what you've actually said without realizing it is that I cannot guarantee it. I suppose if I'm philosophically kind of you know coming at you here, I would say I cannot guarantee there's been different experiences. But I cannot put them into a particular location. No, philosophically speaking, I could call myself. How how can I? I'm not talking philosophically, Adam. I'm trying to do an experiment with you in your experience. And in response to my first question, you said there have been different shades of Adam all day long. So tell us about the Adam whose different shades is present all day long. What would you like me to say? Anything that is true of the Adam that you refer to, whose different shades you experience all day long? To describe the, the experience of self. You said there are different shades of Adam all day long. So I'm using your language. Yeah. Ask you to tell us more about Adam, not the different shades of him, we want to know about Adam, the one that has been present all day long. I suppose I couldn't give a particular word or ex experience or I don't know whether I, yes, I mean, when I reflect back on it, I would say 
it's very hard to pin down. And that, that, I suppose that's why I'm talking to you, an, an experience which is consistent, but which doesn't have a particular quality or color attached to it, which isn't pertaining to the original experience behind it. That's, that's, that's perfect. That's very good. What you've said is that Adam has no objective qualities that I can define. Adam has been persistent, present all day long. You, that was your first statement. Adam has been present all day long. But when I try to find what I referred to by Adam or myself, I don't find anything objective there. I can't say anything about it. What you're saying is that I cannot say anything objective about myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, let me ask you another question. If this is, and I, I'm just reformulating to you what you've said to us. So let me ask another question about yourself. Now. I'll go with it. If you can't find anything objective about yourself, how do you know that you are limited, either in time or space? Yeah, of course you can't. How could anything that has no limits lack something? Yeah, I'm with you there. What is the common name for the absence of lack? Satisfaction. Or happiness, exactly. There you are in four simple steps. You've gone to the happiness that is your essential nature. But why isn't I don't still feel it now, Ben? It's kind of think it in the head. But it's not in the body. It's not experience in the body. No, you, you, you've already said your true nature is not an experience of the body. Sensations, bodily sensations are pleasant or unpleasant, but happiness has got nothing to do with pleasure. But surely you must be feeling it somewhere. You're not feeling it anywhere in the body. It's a feeling state in the body. No? No, it's not in the body. Right, it, it's not it in the body at all. It has an effect on the body. The body, may, the body may relax or laugh or cry as a result of the experience of happiness. But the experience of happiness itself is not a state of the body. So where does it, where is it? Where does it reside? Where does, where does any experience take place? What is the medium within which experience takes place? It's the physical body? No, the physical body is an experience. Okay. Our only experience of a physical body is either a sensation or a perception. In what do sensations and perceptions take place? Um, the mind? In consciousness. 
all experience takes place in consciousness. Even our experience of space takes place in consciousness. So when you say, where does this experience of happiness take place? Uh, I would suggest ultimately it doesn't take place in time and space. Time and space take place in consciousness. Happiness is the experience of consciousness recognizing itself. That is our self recognizing ourself. And it doesn't take place in time or space. Is this view, does God fit into the picture anywhere? I, I would suggest that, that uh, God or the Godhead was the traditional religious term for infinite consciousness. Right. The ultimate reality of both ourself and the universe. So you feel that sense of love and connection, but it's not to a God, it's to just a general experience of reality, energy, the yes, play of it, consciousness. It, I would suggest that the experience of love is the collapse of the subject-object relationship. Subject-object relationship, the me, in the experience, me and you. Me and you are separate. The experience of love is the collapse of that sense of separation. So there's no question of me loving you because love is the absence or the dissolution of the me and the you, the subject and the object, the sense of separation. So in the experience of love, there is no se subject or object. So there's no question of in, 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 the, in the ultimate expressions of devotion, that the devotee and the beloved merge as a concession to the separate self on the spiritual path. Many traditions will suggest to that separate self that they devote themselves to or love uh, the, the teacher or their idea of mm. God or, or, or whatever. Mm. But this is said as a, as a halfway step to encourage the separate self along a path, which if it continues to do so, the sense of separation will eventually dissolve. As Rumi said, in the existence of your love, I become non-existent. This non-existence linked to you is better than anything I ever found in existence. It reminds me of um, that ending of, uh, have you read uh, anything of St. John of the Cross when he says, and I die because I don't die. 
Yes, he's referring to the to the death of the of the of the sense of being a separate self. He realizes that his being, his self, is not really his self as a person. It doesn't belong to him as a person. His being is is God's being, the only being there is. Now, you had that experience 15 minutes ago when I asked you to describe the Adam that remains consistently present throughout your experience. When I asked you to speak about him, you said, I can't, I can't find anything objective there. I then asked you if there were any, if, if this self that you call Adam has had any objective qualities or features or limitations. You said no. That's a negative way of saying my being is infinite. Or as St. John or St. John of the Cross said, my being is God's being. You may not formulate it in ter those terms, but that's what you said. And you said it from your experience, I could tell. Well, no, even and just for the record, with, with our, our discussion with Rupert, is actually I'm playing devil's advocate and I've been very, very into, into what Rupert's saying for years. But um, if I just agreed with everything you said, then wouldn't be much conversation here. So, um, Okay, okay, but I'm playing along. I'm playing along. Um, uh, I, I, I know you off. understand what Yeah, I do. And, uh, and I want, but I wanted to actually to come finally to... I'm playing the game with you. I know, I know. We're playing a game together. And that's That's life. Um, so I wanted to kind of just finally just wrap to wrap up like most people I think that the death anxiety the feeling of not being or the feeling of you know what's going to happen to me when I die I think this is it's very if not a, a consciously aware in you know in one's own experience daily it's underlying there um, and I wondered what you feel now you know kind of like with a death and how you've, you you look metaphysically to the future. I suppose I'm asking, what are your metaphysical views? My metaphysical views in the context of this conversation, <laughs> Adam, are that my being, which is not my being as an individual, it is, is being, infinite being, infinite aware being or God's being is eternal. Why? And by eternal, I don't mean everlasting. I mean ever present. Why is it? Do I suggest that? It's because it's my experience. In my experience, what I essentially am is ever present. It's not coming from the past. It's not going towards a future. It's just ever present now. I have never experienced my own disappearance or my own appearance. I'm not talking about me, the person Rupert. I'm speaking about my essential being. Mm. In, or my being's experience of itself is that it is eternally present and without limits. I haven't come, I, not I, Rupert, I, this being, has not come from something is not going towards something. It is that from which everything else comes, in which everything else exists, and into which everything will sooner or later dissolve. But that being itself is eternal. That which is never ceases to be. That which is not never comes into existence. So this, this understanding puts an end to the fear of death. Uh, and you, and you, you're, of course, the body 
your thoughts, your feelings, your activities, your relationships, the body, all these, all these fall away sooner or later. But it leaves our being intact. And actually one who, one who feels this, the, the aging, as one ages and approaches death, of course, none of us know when death is going to come, but as we live more and more with the possibility of our own physical death, the sense of one's own being, which is the sense of God's infinite being, grows is magnified. It grows brighter in one. And this is accompanied by a deep peace and joy that bubbles up from the depths of oneself. And, and begins to pervade one's experience. I'll pause there for a second. I like that. Okay, so finally on a slightly, perhaps more pedestrian level. Um, so I'm a viewer, I'm a listener. And, and basically more and more we're suffering in this current circumstances with a great deal of anxiety and uh, wanting to do something, right, to, to get rid of this anxiety and to basically be happier. Um, is there any take-home practice that one could do without you here to give a good roasting to, as I have attempted? <laughs> <laughs> yes, to, to recognise that the awareness with which we know our experience and the awareness in which our experience takes place and ultimately the awareness out of which all experience is made is already inherently peaceful. So this, what I'm suggesting, doesn't require a great effort it doesn't require developing or practicing or becoming a, a new or extraordinary kind of person. No, it's just a matter of recognizing the nature of one's essential self. When I say essential self, I mean that, that part of us that is always with us, not our mm. thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions, activities and relationships. These are always coming and going. But that essential being that... that that stays with us, that, has, that stays with us th throughout the day, throughout the night, throughout our lives, recognizing that that one is always and already at peace. It is like the space in the room, never agitated by what takes place in the room. It's like the screen behind the image, never agitated by what takes place in the movie. In other words, it's nature is peace and happiness. Simply recognize that and, and begin to live to know well, That's the question, isn't it? That is the question. Do, do, you, um, do you sit in meditation to do that or do you just go for a walk and think about it? Or Well, to, to begin with, because uh, the contents of our experience, thoughts, images, feelings, and so on, uh, are so demanding, calling our attention all the time, for most people, in fact, I would suggest in practice for everyone, it is first necessary, yes, to sit 
in what's called meditation. So sit, to turn off your phone, close the door, close your eyes, and initially to turn your attention away from your thoughts, feelings, sensations, and perceptions. We are preoccupied with these most of the day. So to begin with, we, we turn our attention away from them, not necessarily to get rid of them or change them, just not be involved with them. You could ask yourself a question like, what is it that is aware of my thoughts, feelings, sensations, and perceptions? And this question will take us, will take our attention away from the content of our experience and our attention begins to relax and come, comes back to our being. And, and we, we rest there. We begin to taste the innate peace of awareness. So to begin with, we, we, we might do that in formal periods of meditation. We sit down mm. for 20 minutes and we just invite our attention to come back, to sink back into the heart of awareness and rest there. But then in time, there's no reason why this this practice, if we can call it a practice, should be confined to formal periods of meditation. A any moment of the day when our attention is not required by our circumstances, we can just pause for a couple of minutes, walking down the street in between emails, cooking a meal, etc., and, and ask ourselves, but what is it that is aware of this experience? And in this way, a, a pause opens up in the stream of our experience, like the cloud cover parting briefly to reveal the ever-present blue sky. So a question such as this, who am I mm. really? What is it that never leaves me? What is it that is aware of my experience? Am I aware? And so on. These kind of questions are like invitations for the constant flow of thinking, feeling, sensing, and perceiving to pause, for a gap to open up in which the background of awareness can briefly shine. And in time, these brief moments cease to be brief moments. We, instead of just catching a sight of the sky for brief moments in between the clouds, we, we, the clouds begin to dissipate or they become more and more transparent. And we remain in touch with the blue sky of awareness in the background of experience all the time. And at some point, we no longer have to go back and forth, either thoughts and feelings or the background of awareness. We can lead a, a fully engaged, active life of, of activities and relationships, and yet at the same time maintain contact with, our, with the innate peace and, and quiet joy that is the nature of our self-awareness. Is there any way or is there anything that one needs to do in terms of the... Uh, material aspect of living to enhance or engender this experience? I mean, is it, as we went and talked about a little bit at the start, is it synchronistic to, is it, you know, kind of correlative to capitalism or do we need to change the way we live in the world or is there anything that needs to be shifted in a more pragmatic yeah. sense? Yeah. You know, it, it's rather the other way around. Uh, the way we live in the world now, individually and collectively, is a result of our understanding of ourself. So to change the way we live in the world without changing our understanding of ourself is a superficial change at best. We want to change the way we live in the world, either individually or collectively. We first have to change ourselves, and then the change naturally, just as our current way of living 
individually and collectively, is an expression of our understanding of ourselves. So as our understanding of ourselves changes, so our way of living in the world will change in correspondence with it. Basically, the way we live in the world now collectively is an expression of uh, the ego, the sense of separation, hence the dysfunction that we see not only in individuals but collectively. If the dysfunction of the ego uh, dissipates and uh, as a result of our felt uh, un, uh, of our understanding and our felt experience of ourselves, we are in touch with the, the peace of our true nature and the felt sense of oneness with others, then this will begin to express itself in the way we live individually and collectively in the world. In other words, the paradigm will change. The, uh, the, the world paradigm is always an expression of our understanding of ourselves. This is why the words know thyself are carved above the entrance to the tempo, temple of Apollo in, in Delphi. These words stand at the at the very origin of Western civilization. And in the East, this was understood well before that, at least a thousand years before, before that. This, this primary understanding that, that civilization, true civilization, is founded upon self-knowledge. True self-knowledge lies at the very heart of civilization. And that is why all the great religious and spiritual traditions emphasize this exploration of the nature of ourself, of the nature of our own minds. It is the foundation upon which all other knowledge is based, and, it thus, and therefore it must be the foundation of any truly civilized society. Well, I don't really know how to wrap it up from there, but... We've spoken for an hour, and I always keep it to an hour. So, any parting words, Rupert? I always think that probably. I think you've probably said enough. I think those probably <laughs> were my parting words. Yes. I, you know, I'd, 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 I'd go. I'll go with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Adam. It's been a it's been a pleasure talking with you, and thank you for coming on.